Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Bridget. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be discussing the social conservative movement in Canada, and more specifically, the history of the social conservative movement in Canada, which I would point out is, is a history that not a lot of people are familiar with. I've often said that pro-lifers and social conservatives are terrible at telling their own story, and as such, we often end up having... Uh, progressive historians and, and left-wing commentators tell our stories for us. In fact, uh, when I was in university, virtually the only thing I ever learned about Canadian conservatives was that they were pushing back against progressives. Uh, as progressives transformed Canada from sort of the medieval Christian society that it was to the enlightened progressive project that we are all still journeying towards. And there's a, there's a few books that are floating around that try to uh, address Canada's pro-life history. Uh, there are a handful of books that were written by, by Canadian pro-life authors like Footprints in the Snow, for example, which is just a collection of, of stories that of just different 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 pro-life activists and different things that they were up to. Most of these books uh, are in particularly well written. Uh, they don't actually they don't actually take a look at history as history. It's not a it's not an objective look told from a conservative perspective. Instead, these books are often just uh, the, the memoirs. I guess is the best way to put it of various pro-life activists. And one of the only books recently that's actually tried to take a look at social conservatism in Canada is a bit of a joke. It's a book called The Armageddon Factor uh, by Marcy McDonald, who's this conspiratorial journalist who penned this bizarre 200-page screed on how uh, social conservatives and Christian Canadians were essentially uh, infiltrating and hijacking the Conservative Party. And Stephen Harper, the, the guy who suppressed social conservatism to the greatest extent he possibly could within the Conservative Party, was apparently an avatar for Christian theocracy in Canada. And the book, it's really quite a terrible book. I bought it when it came out because I was interested and because the organization where I serve as communications director, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, was actually specifically mentioned in this book. But Marcy gets a whole bunch of things uh, that she thinks are true wrong. And as she was looking for various connections between social conservative groups, she gets most of that wrong as well. There was a lot of very obvious connections that she missed because, to be completely honest, the social conservative movement in Canada, while it is rapidly expanding, while a new generation of activists has joined it, yeah, we pretty much all know each other because, it, as shocking as this might be, we're often at the same conferences, we speak at the same events, and because we have shared interests and shared goals, we often talk to each other and sit down to strategize. So this was a, it was a really bizarre and, and humorous book. But I had a couple of months ago, I had somebody ask me, like, if I had to read one book that explained the, the social conservatism in Canada, you know, the pushback to the, the, the progressive cultural project of the sexual revolution, what would I read? And I, at the time, I told them, I, I, didn't, I don't think there is any such book uh, that's, that's, that's done by an academic that actually goes through Canada's history. And there's a, there's a number of these in the States. Uh, both by uh, conservatives and pro-lifers. There's Dr. Daniel K. Williams' book, which uh, details extensively um, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade, and there's even some pretty fair, fair-handed treatments of the pro-life movement by secular academics like Wrath of Angels, The History of the American Abortion War. But in terms of yeah, I just didn't know of any book that actually examined uh, this issue from a Canadian perspective until I, I heard of Dr. Michael Wagner's book, it's called Standing on Guard for Thee, The Past, Present, and Future of Canada's Right. 
Canada's Christian right, pardon me. Uh, Dr. Michael Wagner, is, he's a freelance writer based out of Edmonton. Uh, he's written for a lot of conservative magazines, so he wrote for uh, Ted Byfield's Alberta Report and, and BC Report. He's also written for the Alberta Journal of Educational Research. He's written quite a bit for a Foreign Perspective uh, magazine, which I've written for as well at times. Uh, he has a BA with honors and an MA in political science, and he actually has his PhD in political science from the University of Alberta. And he lives in Edmonton with his wife and nine children. And when I got a copy of this book, uh, I, w I wasn't sure what to expect, but Honestly, it was incredibly well written. It was the, the the level of historical detail was fantastic. The chronology and the narrative were very readable, and I just I I'd recommend it to anybody. Again, it's called Standing on Guard for Thee. It's by Michael Wagner. You can get it on Amazon. This is for any of you who are interested in this sort of thing. And uh, I basically wanted to to recommend this book because it's very difficult to find. Uh, a good history of Canada's social conservatism and to trace Canada's chronology from where we are and who we are, uh, where we were to, to where we are now and who we are now. It's We're a very different country in 2018 than we were 50 years ago. And the country that we live in now is a country that our grandparents, for the most part, couldn't recognize. Some people would consider that a good thing, but I suspect many of my listeners would not think that was a good thing. So anyways, I uh, called up Dr. Michael Wagner to have a conversation about his book, and this is that conversation. So to begin with, uh, as we were discussing earlier, it's often assumed that Canada doesn't have as much of a Christian heritage as the United States does. But uh, your book, Standing on Guard for Thee, The Past, Present, and Future of Canada's Christian Right, details in the introduction and, and the second chapter that Canada really does have a Christian heritage that many of us are unaware of. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, like in Standing on Guard for Thee, I focus a lot on um, a very uh, a best-selling author in the early 1900s named Ralph Connor, which was actually the pen name for a, for a Presbyterian missionary who wrote some of Canada's best-selling novels at that period in the early 20th century. And they were very Christian-themed novels, like the, the heroes were often Presbyterian missionaries who would overcome difficulties in their missionary work. And because that was the best, those were best-selling books, that shows that there was quite a, a very much a market for that kind of literature in the early period of the 20th century in Canada. I've also discovered since then that there are um, other more uh, policy and legislation-oriented evidences of Canada's Christian heritage, one of the best being the Lord's Day Act, which was implemented in 1906, and it, uh, it, was, it was consciously meant to be um, uh, legislating uh, a Christian Lord's Day for all of Canada, and that was the law in Canada until it was overturned by the Supreme Court in uh, 1985 after the Charter of Rights was adopted. And there was also, um, for example, Canada's definition, official definition of marriage or legal definition of marriage was an explicitly Christian definition of marriage until it was overturned by the, an Ontario court in 2003. So there's, there's many evidences, actually, if you look into Canada's history, that Canada uh, was very much a Christian country and had a strong Christian heritage, at least as strong as the Americans, if not stronger. So when did that all begin to change? What I really, what I found encouraging about your book was was simply that for the first time I had discovered a a book by a historian who actually detailed the chronology of how our country Canada got from what you just described a nation with not only uh, a Christian heritage but robust Christian laws and a recognition um, of the fact that we are creating God's image, for example, on what the institution of marriage is and things like that. How did we get from there to here? Okay, well, the, the two key events are uh, Pierre Trudeau's Omnibus Criminal Reform Bill of 1969, which um, legalized 
homosexuality. It had been criminal offense until that time, and he, he eliminated that criminal offense. And also it, uh, uh, it uh, allowed abortion to a certain degree for the first time. Like abortion had been very strictly regulated before 1969, and afterwards uh, it was um, less uh, regulated in the sense that it was more easy, uh, there was more access for women to abortion through um, what the 69, 1969 law established was that hospitals could have therapeutic abortion committees which were committees of three doctors, which would oversee if a woman had a request for an abortion, um, it would go to the committee, and if they uh, thought that the woman would be harmed in some way by carrying on with the pregnancy, she could have an abortion. But uh, in a sense, uh, those therapeutic abortion committees became rubber stamps so that any woman who wanted an abortion uh, would basically get one, although they were only available at hospitals and abortion clinics were not yet allowed. But that Omnibus Reform Bill of 1969 was one of the key events. The other most significant event was the adoption of the Charter of Rights in 1982, which completely changed Canada's constitutional basis and would lead to a series of court cases that would liberalize Canada's abortion laws, you know, by eliminating it and by um, implementing uh, homosexual rights, gay rights. Those are the two key things. Um, also, with the Omnibus Reform Bill of 1969, that led to the creation of the uh, pro-life movement in Canada, because with abortion being legalized to a certain degree, there were many people in Canada who did not approve of that, and so they got involved in trying to stop that. And also, because of the liberalization of the homosexuality uh, laws, um, we, the homosexuals became more public, and that led to uh, some re uh, reaction by Christians against some of the um, uh, some of the things that the homosexuals wanted in terms of homosexual rights, so that led, led to uh, uh, certain Christian activists getting involved to prevent the spread of homosexual rights. So those are two key things, at least, that happened. So a couple of things. When these, these laws, when these shifts started to take place, where was the Canadian public on most of these issues? Because, yes, to some degree, these things were top-down, because in 1969, obviously, Canada... Uh, was closer to the nation you described earlier than it is to the nation uh, that we live in now. But at the same time, uh, there was obviously the shifts that were underway. So how did the Canadian public respond to this sort of thing? Actually, that's a really good question. Um, it, like, it, I, I don't recall any particular polling that was done, but what is interesting is like when uh, Trudeau brought in that omnibus reform bill, the NDP was completely supportive. The Liberal Party was mostly supportive, but there were Liberal MPs who opposed it, and the Conservative Party was mostly opposed, but there were many Conservative MPs who supported it. And the one main party that um, opposed that uh, reform bill was the Creditiste Party in Quebec, which was um, the Quebec wing of the uh, Social Credit Party federally. Like the, in the 1960s, especially the early 60s, the Federal Social Credit Party was actually quite um, significant in Canada, but it ended up splitting between the Quebec wing and the English-speaking wing. And the Quebec wing was very rural, uh, very French, and very Catholic. And so all of the Creditiste MPs, there might have been about 14, they opposed the Omnibus Reform Bill from this particular perspective of their uh, Christianity. They, they saw that as uh, an affront uh, Trudeau's reforms were an affront to Canada's Christian uh, heritage. But I, I don't really, I can't really say for sure, you know, where the population was, but Trudeau, you know, made that famous quip at that time that the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nations. And that became, you know, kind of the slogan of the social reform movement in Canada, you know, for liberalizing uh, any kind of restrictions on um, you know, not only abortion, homosexuality, but also pornography and those kind of things. So even though the public might have been quite skeptical, um, Trudeau sure, certainly made a really good mileage with that particular statement that he made in the media that's still sometimes quoted today. Well, and again, that that 
kind of illustrates to us how far we've strayed, right? Because back then it was the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation, and now with, you know, mandatory attendance at pride parades for all politicians, we see that they're actually wanted in the bedroom as long as they're applauding and paying for uh, paying for things that ensure the relationships will remain sterile and things like that. So we've come a long way, um, and we're not in Kansas anymore. But that leads me to, to another question in terms of the response to these things. So you talk about the rise first of the, of the pro-life movement in response to this sort of thing. But again, the pro-life movement that rose up in response to that um, was, was, was more or less unrecognizable to the pro-life movement that exists now. And you even detail that there was a lot of differences with strategy and that various pro-life groups sort of um, jostled uh, for, the, for the main positions and the main voices uh, they basically jostled in order to to be the ones that represented the vast majority of anti-abortion uh, Canadian people. So can you kind of just give us a summary of what that pro-life response looked like, uh, who the main players were, and what their differences in strategy were? Yeah, um, like at, at the very beginning of the pro-life movement, there were actually many people actually involved with the NDP who were pro-life. They saw the abortion issue as a human rights issue that the um, unborn children, you know, their human rights should be protected. I, I, if I remember correctly, the organization that primarily represented their view was something like Coalition for Life. Right. So that was kind of one wing of the pro-life movement. The other pro-life, other wing was uh, more consistently Christian down the line that represented traditional family values and saw the, you know, abortion as a threat to the traditional family. So there was actually tension between those two groups and ultimately they would split into separate organizations and the more traditional um, organization would have been the Campaign Life which was formed in 1978. And that was after, you know, various, there was conflict within the pro-life movement. Although the pro-life movement, you know, had um, been successful in some respects during the 1970s in the sense that by in the middle of that decade they had a petition with over a million signatures, you know, against abortion and they had um, there were various MPs that would speak out and so on. So there was some, there was some degree of sentiment in the in the general Canadian population that was not supportive of uh, of abortion. But again, like you mentioned, the, the the movement did split into kind of two wings, and then eventually the uh, the NDP or the people who were identified with the NDP would fade away um, because the NDP was so strongly uh, supportive of abortion that those people would either you know, end up joining the mainstream of the pro-life movement, which was the more traditional family-oriented kind, or just disappear altogether. But, I mean, one of the real key people in the pro-life movement right from the beginning was Gwen Landolt. She was involved in um, forming the Toronto Pro-Life Organization and then forming Campaign Life, and uh, she would be their um, legal representation, especially before the committee that um, was considering the Charter of Rights in 1981, and, of course, she would go on to found Real Women of Canada, which became a very important pro-family organization from the 1980s onwards. So she would be like probably the number one person I would identify throughout the history of the pro-life movement for her significance. So Gwen Landolt and who else? If you had to, to give our listeners the names of a few key Canadian social conservatives who contributed in, in significant ways, right? Again, if you yeah. talk about the American pro-life movement, people are immediately going to mention people like, you know, Joe Scheidler and Norma McCorvey. Uh, but in terms of, of the Canadian movement, and it's interesting you bring up uh, Gwen Landolt because she just wrote a new book called Trudeau's uh, Great Betrayal, mm-hmm. um, kind of detailing uh, her legal work in that area. Uh, but who, who, would, who would these main figures be? So there's Gwen Landolt and who else? Well, there's two that immediately come to mind as well. One is uh, Ken Campbell. He was a Baptist evangelist from Ontario, and he first got involved in Christian political activism in the 1970s because of um, the school that his children attended. Some of the literature, uh, the high school, was some of the English literature was um, 
you know, did not represent Christian values. It was starting to be influenced by 1960s sexual revolution type values. And also um, some gay rights spokespersons had come to the school to um, talk to the children there. And that got him first involved in Christian activism generally. But then he would, in the 1980s, become very active in pro-life movement. Uh, he founded uh, Choose Life Canada and had a, an office right by Henry Morgenthaler's abortion clinic in Toronto, you know, as an alternative to um, abortion. And he also got involved in the Operation Rescue uh, movement in uh, 1989, where um, pro-life activists would block the entrance to, um, you know, abortion clinics to prevent abortion. But another key person I have to mention is Ted Byfield, because um, he ended up founding a magazine in the 1970s. It was called St. John's Edmonton Report. It would be, eventually become Alberta Report, and then later on take the, the other sister magazines. But it was the most significant social conservative magazine in Canada for, for decades, and he was very strongly pro-life, and the magazine reflected that, and he would, of course, do some speaking for pro-life matters as well. So looking at uh, these, these key figures, when we have the Omnibus Bill in 1969, and then in 1988, we have the Canada Supreme Court wiping out all of our abortion laws at a single stroke in the R.V. Morgenthaler case, and then essentially sending the abortion issue back uh, to the House of Commons and, and asking uh, them to re-legislate, to redraft legislation on this issue. Uh, and as most of our listeners will know, uh, one attempt was made by the government of Brian Mulroney that passed the Canadian House of Commons and failed on a tie vote in the Senate, which is why Canada in 2018 has now had no abortion laws whatsoever uh, for several decades. But what does this movement look like then between 1969 and 1988? So we have these two strains of the movement that rise up. We've got the traditional values wing and then the more the, the more leftist wing that also respected the rights of preborn children. Uh, that wing eventually either faded away or merged with the traditional wing. And then you have some significant figures that you've mentioned, uh, Gwen Landolt, uh, our mutual friend uh, Ted Byfield, uh, Ken Campbell. What did the pro-life movement look like on the ground at this time? Because one of the things I think it's hard for Canadians now to imagine is, for example, um, clergy and pro-life leaders putting out a call for people on the streets and tens of thousands of people swarming the streets in Toronto around the Morgenthaler Clinic. Right now, if the March for Life gets more than ten to 15,000 people on Parliament Hill, um, people celebrate that as a real achievement, and it is. But back in the day, you could get tens of thousands of people out within just a couple of days to oppose abortion. So what did the, uh, the pro-life movement look like at the grassroots and political level between 69 and 88? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. And it reminds me, too, I forgot to mention an important person. But first, I'll get to that question. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, there was some high-level support uh, in Toronto, like from a, a cardinal there, a Cardinal Carter, I think was his name. And when the Morgan Collar Clinic uh, opened in uh, Toronto, I think that was about uh, 1985, something, somewhere around there, maybe 1983, he supported um, the pro-life movement. And like, as you mentioned, there was one demonstration where I believe there was about 40,000 people against um, the Morgenthaler Clinic. So, yeah, they were able to bring out uh, thousands of people. There was a little bit of civil disobedience at that time, even though the Operation Rescue Movement hadn't started. But there were there were massive demonstrations, as you mentioned. So there was uh, broad support, uh, much more than there is now, like visible support, I should say. But I, I, I forgot to mention another person that was very, very important at this time, and that was Joe Borowski. He had been uh, a Manitoba cabinet minister in the NDP government of Ed Schreier in the early 70s. Um, and he, he was a Roman Catholic. He went to Fatima and recommitted himself to Roman Catholicism. And when he came back, uh, he was very strongly opposed to abortion more than ever before, so much so that he, um, 
he became a full-time pro-life activist, and he launched a court case, and this was a kind of a parallel court case to the Morgenthaler case, where he wanted the courts to declare that unborn children, um, that their lives were protected by, uh, first by the Canadian Bill of Rights, which he initiated the court case in the 1970s before the charter was adopted, so um, he wanted the court to rule that um, unborn children, their lives were protected by the right to life in the Canadian Bill of Rights, but then once the charter was adopted, he wanted the court to rule that their lives were protected by the Charter of Rights itself. So during the 1980s, there were parallel court cases. Uh, Morgenthaler had opened his um, uh, abortuary in, in Toronto, and um, because abortion was only legal by, in hospitals, um, he was charged with a criminal offence. He wasn't allowed to have an abortion clinic. So that was going through the court system, and also Joe Borowski's court case was also going through the court system at the same time. So those are the two uh, significant court cases that were going through. And, of course, Morgenthaler won his case uh, in early 1988, and that struck down um, Canada's abortion laws. Borowski ended up at the Supreme Court shortly after that, and the Supreme Court ended up declaring his case moot because the law that he was challenging um, was no longer in effect because it had been overruled by um, uh, the Morgenthaler case. Now, this was very much considered to be a betrayal because... um, Thousands and thousands of dollars and so much time and effort had been put into the Borowski case that when the Supreme Court decided not to rule on it because it was moot, um, it, it seemed like uh, Borowski had been uh, kind of been led along on a string in a sense. Like, why go through all this only to have the case declared moot when they could have actually ruled on it if they wanted to? So ho- hopefully I got a bit to your uh, question there, but I wanted to bring up Joe Borowski because he was another key figure that I forgot to mention earlier. Well, it's always interesting. The Borowski story is interesting for various reasons, uh, besides just his, his left-wing roots. But I think uh, one of the one of the stories about Borowski that always struck me is the fact that he actually had an aborted fetus in a jar in a briefcase that he was planning to walk into the Supreme Court and actually show the justices. Yeah, that would have been quite an interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, which is just you know, essentially wanted to make them face the face the victims of abortion that they were ruling on, and he wasn't going to let them get away with accepting this procedure without having to come face to face with the very person that this procedure was going to threaten. But in terms of what activism looked like, um, so we have a, a decent idea of what it looked like legally. But um, activism-wise, what were these pro-life groups doing? So I know in the in the, in the nineteen the late nineteen eighties, there's this very brief wave. Uh, of Operation Rescue. And Operation Rescue, for the listeners who aren't aware, uh, most of the listeners will be aware simply because I've interviewed a lot of the veterans of Operation Rescue, including uh, one Canadian rescue leader, John Hoff, uh, from British Columbia, um, who until very recently ran United for Life BC. But this was essentially civil disobedience outside abortion clinics. But in Canada, the judges hammered down so quickly um, and, and made the cost of doing so so prohibitive in terms of large fines and, and, and jail sentences that the, the rescue movement died very, very quickly uh, here in, in Canada. And those who still wanted to engage in rescue-like tactics, by and large, headed across the border and joined Operation Rescue in the States. And there were actually quite a few Canadians present in Wichita, Kansas in 1992 for what became known as the Summer of Mercy. I believe there was 3,000 arrests in six weeks uh, in, in Wichita. But besides the, the, the civil disobedience stuff, what did the pro-life movement look like on the ground uh, during this time? I know you write quite a bit about what Ken Campbell was up to, uh, quite a bit about what a, a bunch of different pro-life groups were doing. What were they doing to reassert protections for pre-born life and to raise awareness about abortion? Um, uh, like, are you talking about the 80s or 90s? Or I'm Sorry, I, I just kind of missed the context. Yeah, 70s and 80s. Yeah, well, like there were... Um there was a lot of letter writing uh, 
uh, campaigns as well as um, uh, petitions. I know that after the Morgenthaler, like he was first charged, actually he must have been first charged in 1983, sorry, that's when the, his, his abortion was opened in 1983 in Toronto. He was charged, there was a court case, but he was acquitted in 1984, and um, the pro-life movement then did a major postcard campaign, like uh, postcards to politicians uh, opposing um, the Morgenthaler Clinic and, and allowing abortion in Canada. Um, I'm sure there was, I can't remember the exact figure, but there were t- tens of thousands of those, maybe even uh, much more than that. But then the acquittal, um, that, this is actually what led to the, the Morgenthaler's ultimate Supreme Court victory. His acquittal was appealed by the Ontario government, and uh, and then um, his acquittal was overturned, and so that's what led to his court case. But I didn't really get to your question, sorry. Um, I'm just thinking mostly in terms of uh, lots of um, uh, letter-writing, postcard campaigns. Um, there was a bit of uh, activism in terms of getting uh, pro-life uh, MPs elected. I know in the 1988 election, that was a few months after the Morgenthaler decision, there was uh, quite an effort by pro-lifers to get uh, pro-life MPs you know, nominated for their parties and then elected. And uh, There were more elected, I think, in 1988 than previously uh, you know, with a pro-life position. Um, uh, so, yeah, I guess there'd be like marches, uh, um, petitions, and... Uh, you know, writing campaigns, uh, those are the main things that come to mind, aside from the legal cases, because legal cases, of course, were key at that time. If the courts had ruled one way or the other, it, it made a huge difference on the outcome of abortion in Canada. With the 1988 loss, you you describe in your book how the 1988 loss uh, of, uh, of R.V. Morgenthaler at the Supreme Court of Canada essentially ushered in an era of virtually nonstop setbacks and defeats for social conservatism. So after we lost at the court in 1988, what happened next? How did we, that sort of uh, begins the, the decline of Canada as a nation that could consider itself at least one of Christian heritage to the nation that we live in today, where, as I mentioned before, attendance at pride parades is, is considered virtually mandatory for politicians. So what, what, what sort of took place in the 90s that, that accelerated that descent? Um, well, in the 1990s, uh, the, the main uh, issue actually became homosexual rights. Like the, in the 1980s, arguably it was it was pro-life, but with the Morgenthaler decision, that was kind of the uh, well, the first part of a decisive defeat. Um, as I mentioned in the book, there was there was two the two other abortion cases that were very important. One was the Borowski one that we discussed, and the other was the Daigle one, which um, Daigle was a, a woman who got pregnant left, and her she and her boyfriend broke up. Um, her boyfriend got an injunction so that she could not get. Uh, an abortion. So this was became an emergency court case at the Supreme Court level. Um, she went to the U.S. had an abortion anyway. So her course, her, her case became moot, just like Borowski's had been moot. But the Supreme Court decided to go ahead and rule on it anyway, and ruled in her favor against the injunction preventing her from having an abortion. And this just showed the Supreme Court's bias in favor of, of abortion because when they were faced with a pro-life case, Borowski, that was moot, they refused to rule on it. And when they were faced with a pro-abortion um, case that was moot, they did rule on it anyway in favor of the abortion um, the abortion request. So so you could see from the Supreme Court level that they really had a bias, in spite of the fact that the Morgenthaler decision was not um, you know, an abortion rights ruling per se, declaring there was right to an abortion. It was, it was done on the basis of, for procedural reasons, that the Canadian law restricting abortion um, had some procedural problems in there, like it would lead to delays for women who wanted abortion stuff. So that was struck down, not on the basis of an abortion right, but on, for, for procedural reasons, which left um, the pro-life movement um, hopeful in the sense that it, it meant that the parliament could still rule and could still implement a ban on abortion if it wanted to. But with the other, with the Daigle decision, they could see that um, the court was, in fact, 
basically in favor of abortion. And as you mentioned, then uh, with 1990, the Maroni government brought in a proposed law on abortion that on the one hand made it illegal, but on the other hand um, allowed all kinds of exceptions. And so what happened with that law, even though it passed uh, the House of Commons, both the pro-life and the pro-abortion movement opposed it. The pro-lifers opposed it because it allowed so many exceptions to the prohibition, and the pro-abortion people opposed it because it technically made abortion illegal. And so with opposition from both sides of the spectrum, it was, it was defeated in the Senate, as you mentioned, on a tie vote. And that, that's kind of there's a sense in which that's a, a real... Di- well, that was the last major, major uh, political um, event for the pro-life movement. I mean, after that... Um, there was very little support among politicians for trying to bring in a law on abortion because there had been so much division and controversy over that law. And, of course, with the, with the court rulings against against the pro-life position, that uh, deflated the pro-life movement, I think, to a large degree in the 1990s. But by the 1990s, the homosexual rights movement was getting much stronger, and there was a series of court decisions at that time, were actually legislative decisions and court decisions that... Um, strengthened the case of homosexual rights, and so more Christians became involved in political activity during the 90s to oppose that move towards um, homosexual rights. One of the big uh, legislative actions was in 1996, the uh, Kirchan government uh, included sexual orientation in the human, Canadian Human Rights Act. You know, that got a bunch of Christians involved, and as I mentioned, there were um, some court decisions as well, the, the biggest of the court decisions being the Wren decision in 1998. Um, basically what happened there was uh, a fellow by the name of Delwyn Wren who worked as an instructor at King's College here in Edmonton. It was a Christian college. Um, it came out publicly that he was living uh, in a homosexual relationship, and it was because it was a Christian college, um, the college had a code of conduct which did not allow that, and he was let go. He wanted to have the college, um, he wanted to take them to the Human Rights Commission in Alberta, but they couldn't because Alberta's human rights legislation did not protect sexual orientation. So we actually ended up taking the Alberta government to court to have uh, sexual orientation protection put into the uh, Alberta Human Rights Act, and to make a long story short, he ended up at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in his favor, which uh, put uh, sexual orientation into Alberta's human rights legislation, which at that time was called the Individual Rights Protection Act. That also led to um, a large degree of uh, Christian activism uh, in Alberta in particular, but also across Canada, and um, Ken Campbell actually figures in here because he was living in Ontario where he was from, and uh, in the light of the Vrend decision, he decided to take out a full-page ad in the Globe and Mail newspaper in, a po- in opposition to the Vrend decision, and his newspaper ad offended some homosexuals, and so he was, there were charges laid against him uh, in the Ontario Human Rights um, uh, Commission and also the BC Human Rights Commission. Uh, the Ontario Human Rights Commission uh, decided not to take the case after all, but the BC case did, um, and that was very expensive for Ken Campbell, and he had to represent himself as a lawyer. He ended up winning the case at the BC Human Rights Commission, but not because um, he, well, it was because of procedural procedural reasons that he won. That is, the the complainant who complained against him hadn't filed his application properly, so Ken Campbell ended up winning, which was a good thing and looks good, but it was only for procedural reasons, so it wasn't on the substance of the case. Anyway, I've, got, I've got, covered quite a bit of ground there quickly. Sorry about that. No, no, not at all. That was the whole point. And so with, with the legalization of gay marriage, the defeat of, of many of the goals of the social conservative movement were pretty definitively defeated. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's basically finalized. I mean, like with the Morgan Dollar decision is, is kind of, in, a, in some sense, finalizing the pro-life or the, the pro-abortion substance of Canadian law and the legalization of same-sex marriage, which was, you know, first initiated by an Ontario court ruling, but ultimately completed in the House of Commons in 2005. That kind of 
you know, gave a complete victory to the homosexual rights activists. That was kind of the, the jewel in the crown that they were looking for. So those are kind of the, you know, the nail in the coffin for the pro-life and the uh, pro-family movements in a sense. And so what since then? I can obviously speak to, to the pro-life movement since then simply because I'm a member of it. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of uh, your historical analysis, where, where has the movement gone since then? Well, you know what, you, and, and like I say, or like you say, you, you know more about the, what's gone on with the pro-life movement. I mean, obviously, it's maintained itself. There are new groups um, uh, emerging, including the Center for Bioethical Reform, like that you're part of. Um, there's there's more and more young people uh, that I understand getting involved in pro-life, mm-hmm. and there's other um, Christian pro-family organizations that have formed, including uh, um, the ARPA, you know, the Association yep. for Political Action. They have a they have a real big role. Like they're, they punch way above their weight. They're quite an amazing group. Um, and there are other groups. There's a group I forgot to mention from the 90s, the Canada Family Action. They became quite influential like in the late 90s and early 2000s for a while, at least up until the same-sex marriage issue. So, you know, there are people who are still uh, committed to the cause. I mean, it, it can be um, uh, discouraging for us that, you know, we've lost on so many levels, but, you know, we will win in the long run. And it's, it is encouraging that there's people still involved um, in Parliament, I guess there have been a few attempted motions just to look at the question of, of um, you know, the status of the fetus. You know, there were there were motions like that. There were That's right, in 2013, yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and even those don't get very far. I mean, it's because the media and the government is so intent not to discuss this issue that makes it very hard for pro-lifers. You know, they say the abortion debate is closed, but it's not closed, it's suppressed. And that's something quite different. Well, the person who closed the, the essentially ran against Stockwell Day for the leadership of the Canadian Alliance Party by stating that Stockwell Day was too socially conservative. And he created this new orthodoxy inside Canadian political conservatism that social conservatives can't win. And then he, and then he won for a variety of reasons. And now there's this idea that if you're too pro-life, if you're too t- socially conservative, if you're willing to speak up on anything other than accounting, uh, essentially you're going to lose because Stephen Harper produced the magic formula. And as we know, uh, Stephen Harper actually deliberately interfered in parliamentary uh, procedure specifically in order to suppress the motion you referred to earlier, Motion 312. Or sorry, the, the motion that was declared uh, on the day that Motion 312 failed, which was Motion 408, um, which was sought to simply just condemn gender side. And so in, inside the conservative movement, Stephen Harper, as the first successful conservative prime minister since Brian Mulroney, has kind of created this orthodoxy that social conservatives um, – will get in line and vote for conservatives anyway because they, they have nobody else, but they should be ignored, marginalized, and silenced wherever possible. No, that's right. You know, it's interesting because uh, Stephen Harper, um, his opposition to pro-life activism goes back to the Reform Party days. And I've got, I've got that in my book where, you know, because so many people thought the Reform Party itself was a pro-life, you know, uh, kind of Christian-based party. I mean, there were very many good Christians involved. There was no question about that. But... Um, Early in the in the 1990s, when the party was just getting established, there were pro-life people in there who wanted the party to have a pro-life position, and Stephen Harper was one of the most publicly uh, pr- prominent people who opposed um, pr- uh, reform taking a pro-life position at all. So his opposition to um, that kind of you know pro-life political position goes back at least to the early 90s, if not earlier. So he's 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 been very consistent on it. Like it's not like he changed his position. He's That's right. Been, he's he's somehow you know many. Canadian Christians think that he's pro-life, and maybe he is personally. I'm not sure how that works, but certainly in terms of policies 
uh, and and um, speaking on the issue, he's always taken a consistent position that that's not something that uh, uh, you know conservative parties should be involved with. Oh, I, I've often thought that when Paul Martin released his advertisements warning Canadians about Stephen Harper's hidden agenda, that the only people who actually believed that were Christians. <laughs> uh, and they sort of hung out and waited for it for years. Uh, and then a lot of people would say to me, how do you know he's not pro-life? I'm like, I'm just suggesting we take him at his word. And, and we just listen to what he himself is saying. And so you are correct. Uh, it's just that when, when, when Canadian Christians and conservatives now yearn for the days of Stephen Harper, I like to point out that the difficult political position social conservatives are in currently was created largely by him. This, this idea that social conservatism, despite the fact that many of its ideas have enormous appeal, especially among new Canadians and immigrant communities, uh, that, that any aspiring politician needs to win, uh, these, these these ideas are only sidelined due to this idea that, that it's, well, we need to follow the Stephen Harper formula. And so that's sort of the position that we're in now, which we're starting to see disappear now. Jason Kenney is obviously a socially conservative person, and he's been consistent on that his whole career. Uh, Andrew Scheer, again, has a, has a perfect voting record. So no politician is perfect, and I'm sure these, these, these men will give us ample opportunity to be disappointed. But they are as consistent in terms of being socially conservative as Stephen Harper was consistent in not being socially conservative. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I mean, like you say, uh, Jason Kenney here in Alberta has a very consistent record, although um, the media, you know, many uh, many aspects or many arms of the mainstream media are, are certainly careful keeping a watchful eye because uh, there are pro-lifers who are, you know, getting involved in the uh, nomination meetings for the United Conservative Party, and that's, you know, getting some attention. And, of course, if a candidate makes a socially conservative statement, um, that's often represented as a hateful statement, and they're made to apologize. For example, you know, one of the candidates recently said she didn't um, support same-sex marriage, and that was considered to be a hateful uh, statement. So there is going to be this constant pressure against any kind of social conservative um, views in the media. Well, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation with Dr. Michael Wagner on his book, Standing on Guard for Thee, The Past, Present, and Future of Canada's Christian Right. This show is brought to you by Total Rentals. And if you want to listen to our past shows, you can head over to thebridgehead.ca. The last couple of interviews deal with abortion politics in Canada. They also deal with how the referendum in Ireland was lost by the pro-life movement and won by the abortion activists. You can check out those interviews also on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on YouTube at The Bridgehead. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope that you'll join us again next time.